This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. As I said, my name's Howard. Um, we're working through a, a series in the book of Exodus. We're using their strap line, he draws us out, <clears throat> which is the bit of the Exodus story that Hollywood likes, that where he, uh, God takes uh, the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, via the blood of a, a shed lamb to, and then brings them through the water, which is like a picture of, of being baptized, brings, us, brings them through the water into uh, uh, the wilderness to meet with him. And we come to right at the, the very center of the book. Um, and so we're in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 this morning. Uh, don't go peek in, but uh, you'll find out what it's about. But if you, let me just ask this question. If you went into the, on the high street uh, or the promenade, in, if you can get in there with the closure of Boots Corner, but if you can get onto the high street, and if you were to do a, ask somebody if they could quote a part of the Bible, uh, you know, they might say, oh yeah, I go to church and I can quote the Bible real well, because I know if they met some of you, that you'd be able to say, hey, I don't know so much. But if, they, if you met somebody who didn't really know the Bible, I, I, I suspect that they might come up with a, with a thou, now, thou shalt not. They might think, hmm, I wonder, yeah, there's something in the Bible about thou shalt not. You, you don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't do those kind of things. And... Um, that might be one of the verses that, that people vaguely remember. The, it almost feels like the, the Ten Commandments, and that's where we are this morning, the Ten Commandments have almost been too successful. It's almost like, oh my word, everybody knows the Ten Commandments. You know, that the, the, there's so much up bits of the Bible, but, but no, the Ten Commandments are right up there. You know, it's something about ten. You know, I, I, if you ever read, go on, on the internet, and I know you all do and waste your time on there, please try and moderate that. But if you, uh, if you go on blogs, they always have 10, 10 things to improve your golf swing. Man, I've, I've searched all those, it's not working. 10 ways to grow your church. Oh, flip. You know, 10 ways to be a better husband. Uh, you know, I need like 20 of those. But, but there's always this kind of, if it's 10, you'll read it, won't you? If it's just a general blog post, you won't read it. But if it's 10, there's something about this, all right, okay. And it's almost like the Ten Commandments have been so incredibly successful. You know, and, and, and it's almost, it isn't as if God didn't want us to remember them. You know, he puts them on a tablet of stone. I know that, that people like to, this is outside an American courthouse, I think. Yeah, there's old debates in the States whether you can put out the Ten Commandments outside American courthouses or not, you know, but that's another story. But, you know, you find them in churches. You find, like, if, you, if we had a church building, thank you, Parabola, for a nice theatre. But, you know, you might have the Ten Commandments up on either side, you know, carved in stone. And it's almost like they're these kind of incredibly memorable things. I mean, it's not that God didn't want to, them to be remembered. He carved them in stone to, in the first place. But the problem with the, the Ten Commandments is that, that it makes people think that, that, that following Jesus, that Christianity is all about rules. 
It makes people think that, that, that God is this uh, controlling dictator who's, who's basically only bothered about cold-hearted obedience. You know, that, that he's standing or sitting in heaven and he's picking out, he's picking out George and he's saying, George, I just, I've got a list of requirements for you and you better, I'm, I'm, I am watching you. I know what you're up to. You know, as if he's this dictator that just wants obedience. If he's the, as if God's this kind of, terrible husband or father who's this obsessive legalist who's just waiting, I'm looking at my kids here, just waiting to, to, to any, any transgressions of the rules, right, he's, he's down on you like a ton of bricks. And, and that's the trouble with the Ten Commandments. It makes us feel like God's obsessed with rules, but the rules do matter. I mean, just on the flip side, there's, there's people out there, if you went on the prom and they said, tell us a bit of the Bible, they might say, oh, God is love. And you think, oh, well, that's better. Is that better than the Ten Commandments? But the downside with, with people just thinking God is love is the only part of the Bible is that uh, they think, well, you know, God's the kind of husband or father who's just kind of lets, lets his kids do whatever they want. And, you know, and, and, and our society's got this idea that, well, it, you know, surely God would do, let people do what they want. He's not bothered about how you behave. You know, he's, God's just loving and forgiving. It's just, yeah, great, I love you, forgive you, whatever. And, and you know if you're a parent... Uh, you know that the reality is that, that, that how your kids behave matters. You know, loving them and rules are not incompatible. Uh, you know, you know if you're a husband or a wife, you know that how your, how your spouse behaves in terms of faithfulness and love really matters to you. It's not like, oh, well, love just doesn't matter. Actually, it does matter. And so the reality is we've got this kind of thing, well, well, where do we sit with all this? Where do we sit with these rules and this God of love? How does it all work? And that's what we want to try and uh, look at this morning. I'm struggling with my throat. <clears throat> so excuse me. So let's read Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is Mount Sinai. And said... This is what you say to the descendants of Jacob, that's the Israelites, and what you to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests." And a holy nation. These are the words you to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words, words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. All of his people responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, And I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and always put your trust in you. You're going to see that later on in the story. We're not going to pick it up today, but who else is... A dense cloud comes on him, and hears God speaking, and the people go, whoa. Sunday school answer? There's so much in there. You think, oh, I've seen that before. I've seen, I've seen clouds, and I've seen earthquakes, and I've seen trembling and stuff, but hey, let's move on. There's so much in here. Then Moses said, uh, told the Lord uh, what the people had said, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day. Oh, that we, yeah, we, we're going to see the third day again in this story, this big story sometime, but we're not going to pick on it yet. But, that, but on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourself for the third day 
abstained from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. You shall not make for yourself an image in form of anything in heaven or above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who blasphemes his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Sixth day you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither of you, nor your son or your daughter or male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie deceitfully against your neighbour. You shall not cover your neighbour's house, you shall not cover your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or his, or his Mercedes. You shall not, I just thought that helped you to stay with me. Or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the, uh, the thunder and lightning, he heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and stayed at a distance. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Then there's three chapters of loads of rules about Sabbath and festivals and employment rights and personal injuries and moral integrity. And then in uh, uh, Exodus 24, uh, after all the rules uh, are done, it says this, Exodus 24, verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up uh, early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bull, bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed on the altar. Then he, they took the book of the covenant, that's the rules that we just read, and read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord says, we will obey. Then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant of the promise that the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of bright blue lapis lazurite, as clear and bright as the heavens. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. Father, we thank you for these incredible moments of rescue and transformation and covenant of 
relationship, Lord, and we pray that you'd you do what we believe you're doing, that you draw us out to draw us in. Lord, I thank you that, that there's something powerful about your desire to eat and drink with us. And I pray after we've heard your word today, as we eat and drink with you afresh, I pray you'd have done something in our hearts by faith. Amen. So Exodus 19 starts with that uh, amazing, those amazing verses that you see elsewhere in the Bible. If you know your Bible at all, uh, you might find them in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. They're familiar verses. This is what God says before the Ten Commandments. So often we jump straight in at the Ten Commandments, but, but God says this before the Ten Commandments, and the context is really important. Uh, God says, You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be uh, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Andrew Wilson, who's um, uh, a theologian in, in, in Catford, he says this, the sequence here rescue then rules and relationships is very important. If they shuffled around, you get a totally different religion than the true Christian faith. Rescue, then rules and relationship. So we start off in verse uh, 19 verse 4, we start with rescue. You ourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. God reminds them that rescue is his initiative. It's something he did. I did to Egypt. I carried you. I brought you to myself. The Israelites did nothing. They didn't qualify by their good behaviour. They didn't qualify by their ethnic origin. They didn't qualify by anything apart from God decided to rescue them. God decided to choose them and rescue them. They didn't. It wasn't their blood. If you'd been with us through this series, it wasn't their blood on the doorposts that saved them from death. It was the blood of a lamb, which picture of Jesus. It wasn't their breath that opened the Red Sea. It was God's breath that breathed on the Red Sea and opened the Red Sea. They didn't really do anything. All they had to do was walk free. And I know sometimes that people think, you know, to, 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 to be a Christian, you, you've got to do a whole lot of stuff. But actually, the, the first invitation is just come and walk free. Just come and walk free. You think, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do this. Now, God's done all the stuff. You just come and walk free. Remember a few weeks back, we quoted these amazing verses in Exodus 14. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Not do anything, but just stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians or the enemies you'll see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. We don't have to do anything. God rescued them before there was any hint of rules or requirements. All they had to do is walk free. And it's so important in looking at the Ten Commandments to understand that rescue and redemption, that's the freeing of slaves, comes first. I mean, I love the imagery of uh, the eagle's wings. I, maybe I've watched too much Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, but you know, the Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit where they're in a, a really tight spot and there's nothing they can do and then the eagles swoop down and uh, in the Lord of the Rings they ride on the back, in The Hobbit they're riding in their talons. Don't know why that works. But anyway, the, there's a sense where they're, they're picked up by the eagles and rescued. 
And, and we, we, that's what, what, almost what God is saying, is I'm going to do that. And what he's saying is, I'm the eagle, I'm the great eagle who's rescued you. I mean, his talons are pretty scary. You know, Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt have felt his talons. The dragon has felt his talons, but we are caught up in safety by him. We're carried by him. Elsewhere, it's, it talks about wings. It talks about uh, 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 God wanting to gather us under his wings. There's a place of safety. The reality is you're incredibly weak. There's nothing you can do to get yourself free from your habits and patterns of behavior in your life, but God's come. He can just pull down your enemies and set you free. All you've got to do is let him carry you. I love this idea of wings. Actually, it's the similar sort of word for cloak. And, and I love the, I couldn't resist it, but you know, if you know the story of Ruth, uh, 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 Ruth uh, wants Boaz to become her husband, and, it, and she kind of breaks the protocol, because Boaz is supposed to cover her with his cloak if he's kind of saying, hey, I think we should get engaged. That's, by the way, it's not an excuse to cover each other with your duvets if you're dating, okay, just in case. But you know, it covers with the cloak, and, and it's kind of like saying, look, I, you're coming under my protection. In your weakness, you're coming under my protection. And so I love that imagery of rescue. And we love a rescue, don't we? We love a rescue. We love a, I mean, only in comedy films you can do it these days because we're slightly worried about the sexist implications of a man on a white charger rescuing a weak damsel in distress. So, you know, Shrek does it with slightly tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, there is something about that that, that you know, fairy stories used to like that. That used to be cool, didn't it? You know, that, 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 that somebody did a rescue. But we don't really like that these days. But we do love a rescue. I mean, I loved, well, I didn't love, but I was intrigued and drawn into this rescue of these boys in the cave in Thailand. You know, how they, how they found them, and then they kind of did this incredible plan, and they say, no, we can't get them out. They're going to have to stay in there for the floods. And then they think, no, no, the floods are going to rise. We're going to rescue them. And they do this incredible plan. And then, we, you know, we're all watching on TV as they come out in ambulances because we love a rescue. We love a rescue. And there's something in us that loves rescue but doesn't like rules. And we've got to understand that rescue comes before rules. God says, I have rescued you. I've carried you from Egypt, I've set you free, I've rescued you. And then he says, actually, just on rescue, it's God, it's Jesus that rescues us. He rescues us by his own blood. You know that picture of the Passover lamb. He rescues us through passing through the waters, we said a couple of weeks ago, passing through the waters of the Red Sea, passing through death into life, destroying his enemies and calling us to himself. But interestingly, there's that in that after rescue, there's this thing where it says, God then says some rules. God is faithful to us and calls us to faithful obedience. He says, Now indeed, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. There's something in our society that doesn't like the word obedience. Hands up if you feel I love obedience. So we don't, like, we don't like obedience because it speaks of slavery in Egypt. It, sweet, it speaks of oppression and slavery. So we don't like obedience. So I think it's an interesting thing, and you can work this out for yourself. Obedience has been taken out of the marriage service, hasn't it, by loads of people. Did Meghan Markle say obey? I, I didn't watch it. I, was, I had something far more important to do, like cut my grass. Uh, <laughs> but did anybody, did she say obey? I don't know. Did she? 
Because obey is this seen as this, well, these are the men, these are the horrible, oppressive men, and I'm not going to obey because, man, you can't trust. I can't trust a guy who's going to oppress me. And, and there's something in our society that hates the world, word obey. And so when you come and God says, I want you to obey, immediately you flick into, oh, he's, he's, the, he's the domineering husband. He's the oppressive tyrant. I obey, I've got a problem with obey. I've got a problem with obey. But I thought about this and I thought, actually, it's not Jesus' the slave master that calls us to obey. It's Jesus, the loving husband, that calls us to obey. There are a few loving husbands in here. Some of us are working at it. But, you know, there's a loving husband that calls us to obey. He's the one who's rescued us, and he's the one who calls us to faithfulness. Obedience in the, com- promise, uh, in the context of covenant Marriage, by the way, is a covenant. It's like this agreement between both sides that's kind of this lifelong commitment together. That's why marriage is done in this public kind of way and you sign registers and it's all legal. It's this covenant where where the husband says, I will do this and this and this. And the wife says, "In in response... to your love and faithfulness, I will do this and this and this. It's a covenant. And, the, and in the context of covenant, promises spoken are like the bride's vows in response to a bridegroom promise of love and faithfulness rather than a list of rules. So I just want you to get that, that, that God has rescued us, but then there is rules, but rules are not God saying, here, I've got some certain things that I'm going to work through with you before I rescue you. You know, it's not like you're in the cave in Thailand and God is speaking through the hole and said, now I've got some rules, little boys, before I let you out. You must promise to do your homework and clean up your room. This is, I'm just pointing at my kid, actually. You must promise to do your homework and be, obey your parents, and you must do all these things, and then I'll let you out. And they go, well, I don't know if I can keep those. Why, we're keeping you in there until you... Co- <laughs> That's nonsense, isn't it? Rescue comes and pulls you out, and then there's a response. I'm sure these kids from Thailand must think, I could have died. I could have died. My life is suddenly of value and purpose. I I, I need to behave in a certain way. I don't just want to waste my life on Facebook. I've got God has called me to something. So there's the rescue. Uh, it, it is, you know, if it comes before rules, it changes the whole context of rules. Other religions or empty religion, it's about rules, and if you keep the rules, then you might get rescued. And maybe then God might have some kind of relationship with you, provided you stay clean and don't mess up. That is empty religion. It's empty religion. You think, rules come first. So I meet people, as I said before, who think, well, when I'm a good person, then I'll become a Christian. So I met a friend uh, 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 in, in, the, in the supermarket, and she'd been on a 3 one course, and I'm saying, how are you doing? And she says, well, I'm doing okay. And I said, when are you going to come back to church? When you, you know, she's not a Christian yet. She's just kind of checking us out. She says, well, when I'm better, when I'm good. It's almost like she's got this idea that I've got to keep the rules, and then God might love me and rescue me and have a relationship with me. And that's empty religion. And I think so many people that you might meet out there, and even sometimes people in church, but certainly people you might meet out there think, God wants us to keep the rules, and if we keep the rules, maybe he'll save us, and transform our lives, 
And if we're really, really special, we'll have a relationship with him. That's not what these, this is saying. Actually, it, excuse me, I don't want to be rude about Muslims, but Allah is basically saying, but, you know, Islam means submit. Allah does want you to keep the rules. And then he might save you if you've done enough good stuff. But don't think about relationship with Allah, because Allah doesn't get dirty. doesn't get involved, he's distant. It's far be it from him to get involved. And you read the Quran, that's what it says. But this God, the God of Israel, gets involved. He rescues before any hint of rules. And it says, it says, listen to my voice and obey what I do. He's already rescued us. He's saying, look, there's some vows we need to make together because I want relationship. Look at these words of relationship in 19, 5 and 6. Why did God rescue them? Because he wanted relationship. He wanted to draw them out of slavery, to draw them in to relationship with me, with him. Look at that. This is what he says. If you, if you hear my voice and we make this covenant together and we vow together to, like a husband and wife, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, even though the whole earth is mine. God is saying, everything in the world is mine. Every nation, every person, everything. He says, but I'm going to choose you to be my precious, treasured possession. That language for treasured possession means like the king's precious personal jewels. You're going to be the king's wealth, the king's crown jewels. I, he says, I've got, God says, I've got all the, all the whole earth, but I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you to be my treasured possession. You are going to be priests and kings, a holy nation. I mean, this is an amazing marriage proposal, eh? Think of it that way, if you can, I mean, guys, you might have to struggle because you're going to be girls for the rest of the talk, okay? But, you know, that, that, that actually this is an amazing marriage proposal. It's almost like Jesus gets down on one knee. Actually, he, he doesn't get down on one knee, he gets up on the cross. It's not just, you know, let's find a beach in Barbados. But he's saying, no, there's a hill outside Jerusalem and that's why I'm going to my marriage proposal to you. And he says, all that I am, I give to you. Literally gives him very self. He says, I've chosen you and will rescue you and I've rescued you and I will treasure you. Will you be my wife? So, so different. So, so different from a set of rules. I love the idea of priests. The thing about an idea of priests is that they're out to the people, but they can go in to the very most intimate place. It's like a, a wife's privilege, a, a husband's privilege to go into that very secret, intimate place. And God says, I'm going to give you that privilege. You're going to be a kingdom. A whole lot of you are going to have that privilege to come right into my presence. Go right out to the people. I'm going to pick you and make you like my character. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be like me. It's interesting, when marriage takes place, that's what happens. You know, I've, said, I've joked before that people become like their dogs. You know, you, we used to have this uh, do, uh, uh, picture book when we were kids. I don't know if you remember it. And basically it had Heron McClary from Donson's Dairy. If you're a parent, it's excellent. Otherwise, forget it. <laughs> but, it, you know, it has people that look like they're dogs. You know, it has a skinny kind of athletic person with a skinny athletic dog. 
whatever. It's got a big shaggy dog with a big shaggy... You, know, you get the idea. And, and people look like they're dogs. But actually, people, if you spend time together in relationship, you start to look like each other. Not in terms of outwardly, which is a good, good news for Naomi, but, but, but inwardly, you start to share the same characteristics the same characteristics, and God wants to put his life in us so we share his characteristics. You're going to be a priest. You're going to get into the most intimate place, and you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be like me. Let's get to the rules. But before that, there's an interesting thing going on. Uh, Exodus 19. I think there's a wedding. So I've said all this about weddings, and you probably thought, I was just trying to soften it and make it nice. There is a wedding going on, and we're going to race. So here's this. I found this about a Jewish wedding. These are the aspects of a Jewish wedding. I will pronounce them incorrectly. I've even put the Hebrew up. The first thing is, uh, pronounce it for me, a mikvah? A mikvah, a ceremonial washing. Second thing that happens is a, a chaput, a place of covering or canopy. The next one is a ketubah. Ketetubah. As you can see, I did Hebrew at Bible college. <laughs> A written covenant, and the last one is an oath, or a sign of public expression. So these are the aspects of a Jewish wedding, okay? They're kind of similar to our wedding as well. These are in the story. These are in the story. First, a place of ceremonial washing. Where have we seen Israel go through water? Come on, you know this. The Red Sea, okay? But also, in, in, in um, and it says in... Uh, uh, Paul says this, he says, All our ancestors were all under the cloud, that's the cloud of God's presence, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And it's almost as if in Exodus 19, God wants to underline that there's a marriage taking place here. He has says to the people, you've got to wash yourself and don't have sex. Let me read it. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And after Moses had gone down the mountain he, he, to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Prepare yourself for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. And when you read that at first, think, What's God doing saying, Don't have sex for three days if you're a married couple? Uh, if you're not married, you know the rules. Okay. <laughs> so if you're a married couple, he's saying, don't have sex for three days. Why is God saying that? Do you think he's like thinking, uh-huh, well, that's going to really tick him off. No, he's doing that because he's saying, actually, there's, there's something going on that's about cleansing for a wedding, but actually there's a sense where you're not going to focus on this earthly relationship, you're going to focus on this relationship with me. So there's a washing, yeah? You, you can see that? We're, we're tracking. Nod, please, if that's in Exodus 19. The next thing is there's a place of covering or a canopy. I'm not even going to pronounce the word. Let's read it. Exodus 19, verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud. Oh, it sounds like a canopy, doesn't it? A thick cloud over the mountain, a, a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Then the Lord led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood. Actually, the language is, says, under the mountain. So they're covered by the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with a canopy, as it were, of smoke because the Lord descended on the fire. Where else have we seen Israel covered by a cloud? 
The Red Sea. It is the Red Sea. There's, it's either Jesus or the Red Sea. It's, yeah, there's a cloud, isn't there, that, that covers them, that separates them from Egypt. There's a cloud that covers them. But here again, there's a cloud that comes down on the mountain. And we've got this idea that God covers the people with the, with the canopy of his wings, the cloak of his wings. There's a wedding going on. There's a place of washing. There's a canopy. And then there's a written contract. These are the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, what happened in the, in the written contract or the covenant that, that two copies were made, one was given in the marriage, one to the husband, one to the wife. And it's interesting, if you read the Bible, there are two copies that are made of the Ten Commandments, but both are given to Moses. Because actually God's not going to forget what he said, he's not going to break his word, so it's us that need a, a helpful reminder. Let me just ask you this question. What's the first commandment? Is that right? Is that the first commandment? You shall have no other gods but me. Now there's a rescue first. Just to underline what I'm saying, there is a rescue first before any rules. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of, interesting phrase, the house of slaves. Yanova says the land of slavery, rubbish. The house of slaves. They were in one house, one household, a household of an oppressive slave master husband, and they've been brought out of that house to have him as their master, him as their husband. And it's so easy, we flip out, if we take the rules out of context, then they just become this horrible list that, that stand over us, mocking us. But actually, if you understand now, they're in the context of, I'm the Lord your God who rescues. They're in the context of rescue. And it's almost as if God takes Israel out of the house of slaves. You know, it says a, a man will leave his father and mother and he comes out of the house of slaves and he, they go down the aisle. If they've been down like something lined by water, they go down this aisle, almost like this aisle of water, and God brings them to himself. Now it's time for vows. I, I could have just jumped through these, but I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to give you a little table, and, and I think there's two aspects. You could pull lots of things out of here, but I'm going to pull, for each commandment, I'm going to pull out two aspects. I'm going to pull out one about God's character, and one about marriage vows. So we're going to re just read these. Because I think it does track. So the commandment one. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the house of slaves from Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a representation of God's character. God is saying I'm the God who rescues and saves, who chooses for life and freedom. What's our commitment? Our commitment, our vow is we commit to be in an exclusive relationship with him. If you read it as like, I've saved you and I'm your husband, commit to an exclusive relationship with me. It doesn't sound like you're going to have no other God. Commandment two, you shall not make any images or idols. God is the fruitful, life-giving God. This is his character, the fruitful, life-giving God who treasures us, but false gods are futile and they only bring emptiness and death. We commit, our vow is, we commit to forsake all other husbands all other gods, all other loves, we refuse to treasure them or worship them. Three, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What, interesting, what happens at a marriage? About names. It's a, there is a clue in the commandment, but I'll just ask you so you can click. What happens, in the, what happens with the names? You take the name. I know that's 
that's not cool these days, and you like to double barrel it or you know, flip a coin. You know, I, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to get into that. But there's an element where, where, where the, 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 the bride takes the bridegroom's name. There's a taking of the name here. It's interesting, because some think it's just about swearing. What's the name about? God's name reflects his character. The misuse of his name is to rebel against his mighty power and immorally belittle his character. So when people say, you know, what blaspheme, what they're saying is God means nothing to me. But actually we've got a much firmer commitment than that. As Jesus' bride, we've taken his name. So therefore, what we do, how we live, honours or dishonours God. And it says, uh, it says in the Old Testament, you've, my name's profaned or dishonoured in the nations because of you. Israel takes his name but doesn't live like it's married to God. And God's mocked. Four, let's go quick. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath is a declaration of God's sufficiency. He doesn't need to rest, but we do. You know, when, when you sleep, you're saying, I need to rest. I need to sleep. I need to recharge. God doesn't sleep or slumber. He doesn't need to recharge. He's self-sufficient. We are dependent. But what's our commitment is we declare in our vows, we declare to rest in Jesus' love to rest in his identity and reject all attempts to work for his love or own our own identity, earn our own identity. There's a sense of rest. Five, honour your father and mother. God is a loving father who lives in community of love and delight. Our vow is we honour God as our father and we honour the family that marriage creates. Six, you shall not murder. God's breath, spirit, gives humanity life and value. We honour Jesus as the life giver. When you take a life, you're basically saying, I reserve the right to be the life giver and taker. It's his right. And his his wife, we say, that's your right. You shall not commit adultery. God is eternally faithful. Why doesn't God like adultery? Because he's eternally faithful. Eternally faithful. And our vow to him is, Jesus, our true husband, we're going to be faithful to you. That means we refuse unfaithfulness in our marriage relationships. We refuse unfaithfulness in our attitude. We say we're committed to you. We will not be adulterous. And there's a whole book in the Bible called Isaiah where Israel says, I don't care about my relationship with God. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to go and be a prostitute. You shall not steal God is not grasping, but overflowing in generous. If God is, God doesn't need to steal. There is another God with a small g who likes to come to rob and to steal, who's actually lacking, wants to take, wants to take your life and master it, wants to take your stuff and master it, wants to take it and destroy it. There is a God that does it, but our God is a God who gives. So we say, you are the eternal giver. You're not grasping, but overflowing generosity. So we're going to trust Jesus, our husband, to provide for us. We're not going to try and provide for ourselves. You know what the thing with money is that you, if you're holding your money as a matter of security, I'm not saying you've got to give all your money away, just understand the context, but if you hold so tightly to your money, first of all, you're not going to have anything because it's going to run through your fingers, but if you're holding all so tightly to your money, what you're basically saying is, I don't trust God to provide. And you, he is your husband, it's his job to provide. He commits to provide. So we say we trust your provision and we're not going to get our own. Two more. 
You shall not lie deceitfully against your neighbour. God's word is truth lying in his attempt to be God, to create the world in our image. God creates the world through his word. When you lie, people, and I know I do sometimes, we're trying to create the world in our image. Shape it our way to get people to think good of us, to, to think the way things we want them to think. It's an attempt to create the world in our image. God says, don't do that. We commit to walk in truth and openness. One of the things that's great about relationships that you might have in this church is that, that hopefully you've got one or two people of the same gender who you just say, I'm just going to be really open with you. Because openness is a characteristic of saying, I trust the one who's full of truth. And lastly, you shall not covet. <clears throat> covet means you want something else that it's not yours. God gives himself away and is never empty. If we look elsewhere, we'll never be full. We commit not to look elsewhere, but to Jesus for our joy. Do you like those? I hope I haven't twisted them too much. I don't think I have. I think I've just taken the context of Exodus 19 and says, I think there's a marriage vows. Changes the way we look at them. So what happens is we've gone rescue, rules, now relationship. Ex uh, what happens is that after the, after the rules have been read out, it says the people were, were tr stood at the bottom of the mountain and the mountains covered in smoke and they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. It's almost, even though Israel's been rescued, sin is still a barrier to relationship with God. Yes, they've come out of Egypt, but sin is still a barrier to God. It's not the same for us, but, but for them it was. It's almost as if God is left at the altar. He says, come and marry me. And they go, whoa, you're too holy. I cannot be with you. I'm unable to approach. It says that they, they feared that the fire of his holiness would destroy them. They know they need a mediator. That, that we've said this before, they said to Moses, could you go in our place? Could you go and have a relationship with God? Go to God, and you get all the way through, up and down. God's, Moses is, must have been exhausted, climbing Mount Sinai, up and down to God and the people, up and down. He's a mediator. But Moses, the mediator, they say to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we'll die. But then there's something else. There's something else that needs to be done, and Moses knows that there needs to be a sacrifice. And this is the fourth point, the public expression of covenant. We'll race through this. The first sign of marriage to God and his people is the sacrifice. Let's read it. Moses got up early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent out the young men of Israel. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. The Lord Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, that's those ten commandments as it were, uh, and, and the other things, and read it to the people. They responded, we'll do everything you say, we'll obey. Then Moses took the blood that's in the bowls and throws it over the people. The people are literally covered with the blood. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Interesting, the blood here represents... Stay with me, guys. The blood here represents like the people, because if you read it, it says, it says uh, Moses took the blood and, uh, for the 12 tribes and they all sacrificed. It's almost like Moses, the blood represents the people. But then later on, it says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. There's a sense where this is the people's blood, but it's also the Lord's blood. And when it points to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, yes, it's human blood. It's, it's the blood that represents us, but it's also God's blood 
spill over us, covering us to fulfill our marriage vows. The second thing, and this is where we finish here, the second sign of the marriage is a meal. There's a meal. We're going to break bread in a moment. It's a meal. Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of bright blue lapis lazuli, as clear and bright as the heavens. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. This is phenomenal. God's goal in rescuing us and giving us the rules is to bring us into relationship. Relationship, yeah. It's God's purpose to bring us to relationship. They're covered by the blood so they're not going to be killed. And God says, come on up. The people dead come up. But what happens is 70 people, 70 elders, 70 men go up and enter the presence of God. It's almost like the veil is lifted, like the marriage service. The veil is lifted and they see God. Wow, amazing. See God. You find elsewhere through the Bible, and we'll look at it later on, no one could see God and live, but yet in this moment, be covered by the blood, they lift the veil lifted, and they see God. This is a glimpse of heaven. This is a glimpse of relationship. But there's something incomplete about this. There's no women. What else? There's only 70. How many, how many are at the bottom of the mountain? Have a guess. About a million. Only 70 go up. The rescue's been made, the blood is shed, the words of life have been read, but only 70 enter into the presence. And there's a something that says this isn't right. There's something incomplete about this. And this incompleteness hangs over through the whole book of Genesis, like what, of Exodus. Why just those few? This incompleteness says, well, why can't everybody come up? And the book of Leviticus gives you some ideas about it, but actually the bottom line is why they, they can't come up. They're invited to the meal, but they can't come up because of their sin. They're invited to sit down in the presence of God to eat and drink, and they can't because of their sin. But on a Thursday night, as I said before, on AD 30, on a mountain that's Jerusalem, 12 men, it's only 12, not 70, 12 men gathered for a meal with the God of Israel. The longing is almost over. Matthew records that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, when he'd given thanks, he said, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, same language as Exodus which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What happened, what was going to happen, was Jesus was going to die. He was going to pass through the waters. He was going to make that vow. He was going to say, all that I am I give to you. He was going to make that vow. And then what's going to happen is he's going to come out alive and 12 were going to be a, become 120. God's spirit was going to pour on them, on a mountain. There was going to be shaking. And, the, you know, on the third day, God's there's a shaking. God rises, Jesus rises from the dead. And then the, there's a shaking and a trembling. And 120 receive God's spirit. And then it's 3,000. And then it's thousands. And then it's millions. And then it's you. God has brought us out for a relationship with him. The question as we... Finish and break bread and, and 
is will you come? Will you come? God has made a way in a relationship, and I know it's been long, but I hope you've tracked with me that this is a wedding invitation. This is a proposal that God is making to you. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope that you have said, I do. That you've said, all that I am, I give to you. I'll obey you and love you and honour you. And Jesus says, I give my life for you. And you say, I receive that and will be faithful only to you. And Jesus says, if you've done those vows, come and eat. Come and eat with me. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to basically say, come and eat. Now you might think, oh, I long for those moments where we really are in the presence of God. Wouldn't it be amazing if we opened our eyes, if the veil was lifted and we opened our eyes and saw God on that, in his all his goodness and glory and we, and we saw him in the, that blue uh, pavement in front of him of lapis lazuli and we said, I want to encounter you. But actually, I think it came through in our worship. That is our privilege. By faith, you encounter him. That's your privilege. You're, you're his precious light and you're his priest who can come right into the very presence of God. He's shaping you and changing you into his character if you let him. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.